0: Hello, my name is Kevin Sturmer, and welcome to another episode of A Moving Tale, sponsored by The Outermost Ring. Before we get to today's incredible guest, I once again want to answer the question I get more often than anything else. What is The Outermost Ring? It's the title of a musical I'm writing, and I like the philosophy so much that I made it the core of my company. It refers to the rings of a tree. And as a tree grows and expands, it adds one ring for each year of its life. The outermost ring refers to the present or the current time. I like the idea that we're always learning, always growing, and taking new shape, while never losing sight of where we've been and what's at our core. I also love that we've partnered with trees for the future. And for each podcast episode, the Outermost Ring donates 100 trees to be planted in their forests around the world. My guest today knows all about growing and evolving. Among his many talents, he is a futurist translating the trends of tomorrow to inspire change today. He is a true multi-hyphenate, a self-proclaimed misfit finding global success in everything from cybersecurity to social media strategy to early adoption of technology. This ADHD superpowered girl dad of 3 is the founder of iSocial Fans and has a book coming out. We're going to get to all of it. So press the damn button because you are about to hear a moving tale from my
1: guest Brian
0: Fanzo welcome
1: welcome welcome how are you I'm doing great I love that uh I love the little background there on the outermost ring and got me even more excited for the conversation so happy to be here
0: it is so great to have you here thank you thank you and before we get to your book press the damn button the creator economy your ADHD creator coin on rally.io social audio and all of that let's take our cue from the sound of music as we always do and start at the very beginning I want to talk high school and hockey and explore a little bit. Were you always pressing the damn button, raising your hand and stepping up? Or was there a pivotal
1: moment or person in your life where you found that inspiration? My mom likes to say I came out of the womb talking. And so I think I was born naturally to be um, very loud and proud of raising my hand uh, I, I look back now, I think a lot of it has to do with the ADHD. You know, my frustration with not being able to concentrate or pay attention. Oftentimes I masked it by being able to just raise my hand. I, like I was the kid that every class from, from as far as I can remember, be like, you know, raise your hand know, if you know the answer, everyone except Brian, because he wants to answer every question. And like it wasn't because I was the smartest. It was actually far from but I knew. That if I was participating and I was raising my hand, it would help keep my attention. And so, yeah, since I was, you know, since I was young, I'm the oldest of three boys. My brother and I are 16 months apart, and then my other brothers are about 16 months. So we were very close, very tight. Uh, I actually moved when I moved to Arizona. I, I bought the house next door to my brother, so we shared backyards. We both have three daughters, and family, of course, being very important. My dad's the greatest storyteller that I've ever met in my entire life. He's also the greatest salesman i've ever met in my entire life he's a candy salesman didn't go to college um but was always really great at understanding people that empathy and then selling he likes to say he worked for peanuts because he owned a peanut brittle company so uh that gives a little insight into that um yeah i like to say i, I get probably get that from my my dad my dad just being so outspoken but i'm definitely a mama's boy i don't look anything like my dad my dad is true italian he's dark skinned black hair both of my brothers are the same um, my mom is Irish, so I have the Irish blue eyes, uh, blonde hair like my mom. Uh, and my mom is, uh, you know, she's a people pleaser, wants to make everyone happy, very emotional, very. I mean, she ran my house. She wasn't a stay at home mom. She was the the queen of our, our domain. My my dad traveled Monday through Thursday most of the time of my childhood for his business, and so my mom was literally anything and everything she ever did, and she ran the ran the house with three boys and now she's a grandma of six girls. So she's very <laughs> proud of that. So uh, I take it a little bit from both of them, but I definitely came out of the womb uh, talking and, and really not afraid. I think it also is like, I've never been afraid of being who I am. Right. Like just, I just kind of, have always owned that. I think it's partially because my parents were kind of always just like that. Like when they would see me stray to become like what they, what I thought others would want to be. My my parents would just question me like, Brandon, is that, is that what you want to do? And I think because I respected my parents so much and just they were you know so good to us that I, it always just kind of kept me checked. And so I feel like it's, it's probably like, like, you know, for a while in school, you're like, I just want to blend in. And then you're like, can't figure it out. But I was always the kid that was friends with all the groups that most people weren't friends with. You know, I had a vanity license plate from the day I turned 16 that had different, you know, phrases on it that were like my, you know, I had my hockey team name on it. And, uh, and so I think it's, I think it's always been just kind of who I am and kind of how I lived. I think it also has to do with you know, like I was born in Pittsburgh, and Pittsburgh is very you know, there's a it's a very proud blue collar area. But I also like I moved in fourth grade to Virginia Beach, and so like my brothers, their memory of Pittsburgh is very limited. And for me, I think it was extra loud and extra proud about my like Pittsburgh love because I feel like it was like my way of connecting my brothers. Both of my brothers picked different football teams at some point, and I never wavered. I've been a Pittsburgh loyal, and eventually. They both came back around and our our Pittsburgh loyal, we go to games together and stuff. So,
0: and it's interesting because sports has been such a large part of your life and your career. Now, what role did
1: sports play when you were growing up? So, yeah. So, um, yeah, and actually it's funny when you said that about the sports side, you know, my dad, you know, he's had season tickets for the Steelers since before they were at three rivers. So like 1969, my dad got them. And so he went to all the games with his dad. And for me growing up, We were either playing sports or watching sports. I was coaching. uh, I worked at a skating rink. as a. My my family owned a frozen yogurt shop. So that was like where my parents, like first, it was probably one of the most genius parents move of all time. My parents were worried because I was the oldest. Both my brothers were goody two-shoe, straight-A students. Uh, I was the oldest and not. And uh, my parents decided to buy a frozen yogurt shop, uh, not because they thought it was going to make money because it didn't make money for the first 14 years they owned it, but they wanted to keep a pulse on their kids' friends. And they were like, we're going to pay... $2 $2 above minimum wage. And every girlfriend I ever had, every friend I ever had, worked at my family frozen yogurt shop right across from the beach. It was a great gig and uh, you know, eat frozen yogurt. And that was the first job I ever had, like as a manager. I had to hire and fire one of my good friends who had messed up. And my dad was like, You vouch for him, you go in and and let him know that he's done. And I think now looking back, there were so many life lessons just like inbuilt in that. But I also worked at a skating rink, did some DJing, uh, coached roller hockey, uh, especially because my my younger brothers. Uh, and then, kind of like I now feel like I missed a lot. Like I didn't see Star Wars until I was in college, because I was like, I'm just tired of missing all these inside jokes. So I was like, this is ridiculous, right? I remember um, I you know tried out for a couple plays in high school, and because I, I had Thespian genes for sure. I think my stutter was a little bit of the the issue on that. Sometimes I have a stutter, and funny enough. I didn't really know the plays because I wasn't like they were mainstream. Like, it wasn't like my parents like sheltered us from that, but it was just kind of like we were just very um, sports enthused. And So a lot of the storytelling, like my dad is extrovert extrovert. Every person he's ever sat next to on the airplane, he will tell he knows their entire life story by the time they get off the plane. Like, and that was our dinners Thursday and Friday nights was. So I sat next to such and such, and that was just my dad's way of living, sharing, kind of bringing us on his journey. I'm an extrovert, but I hate forced conversation. So like I'm the opposite. Like I'm the guy, when you go on the plane, I have the big headsets on, even if they're not even plugged in. I just don't want people to talk to me about the weather or where I'm going or business, but like a random conversation, I'll talk all day long, you know, through, so high school, I, baseball was my love. Baseball was where I was really, really good. I was a catcher, uh, made all state um, middle school, uh, going into high school. And unfortunately, first knee surgery, just before I turned 16, I was also a stubborn kid that was a surfer. So I like to surf in the mornings and I was supposed to be on crutches for six months, I think month one and a half. I was hobbling on crutches on the beach to get onto the surfboard, which then eventually just became walking on it. And then uh, unfortunately it caused a second surgery uh, that I had to get. And then during the second surgery, they found out they actually messed up. So ended up having a third knee surgery and uh, kind of ended my catching baseball career. We had always played roller hockey, like from like 11, 12, and we played like travel roller hockey. So I went to Disney World on a full, like, I mean, we went to Iowa, we traveled all over the state, all over the country playing roller hockey, competitive roller hockey. Um, And this is mid late nineties. So roller hockey is actually, you know, ESPN picked up in roller hockey league at the time Like roller hockey was kind of picking up, you know, growing up in Pittsburgh, it was like, it was ice and like, and my skill in all sports has always been my ability to see the game and knowledge of the game, much more so than my athletic ability. Uh, when I was deciding between schools, I got into West Virginia and the person that was running uh, West Virginia hockey knew me from the roller hockey days and was like, man, I, w- I want you to come play hockey on I me. And it hadn't really dawned on me to play ice hockey in college. And so when I went to Radford, uh, which is a small school south of Virginia Tech, I went there and was like, hey, what's your hockey team look like? And they were like, we just got suspended for the league for a year because of like bench clearing brawls. But They they were bringing in like a brand new coach and they're like, we don't have scholarships. Uh, and I fell in love with uh, Radford university, this small school. My best friend was a year older than I was, she was there uh, playing softball. And so I, I ended up canceling my West Virginia cause I'd already got a roommate at West Virginia and went to Radford uh, to play ice hockey and ended up playing ice hockey all four years there became the assistant captain of the team. I like to say the only assistant captain ever that played third line. So I was an assistant captain because really I could see the ice better than most people. And I just, I've always had a knack for understanding people. Um, you know, it's a lot of that is the ADHD skill too. It's the, you know, seeing things that maybe others don't see. I was also president of fraternity, um, at my college, my, my sophomore year. And a lot of that was because school was so difficult for me. I think I, I was able to, I always was thriving on everything else around it, but like you know, even just attending class and stuff, I struggled at those kind of like basics. Where I thought when I went to college, everything was gonna be easy because I, I just kind of like I struggled really hard through high school, but I had perfect attendance because I loved school. I loved, you know, I was I did the newspaper, I was in the yearbook squad, I uh, played sports, I I was friends with everyone in in school, uh, but I struggled, like really struggled bad through school. And I had a couple of teachers in high school that, uh, my senior year, they're like, Brian, if you want to go to college, we need you to take an AP class. And I was like, I just got a D in your 11th grade English class. Why am I going to be an AP English? Like, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, it doesn't require reading as much as it requires more writing and more, you know, of that side. And they're like, we know that's what you're strong at. And and I ended up getting an A. My, when well, my first A's in high school, I ended up being an AP English after getting a D in uh, in regular English the year before. Uh, and so, yeah, my that was kind of my journey to that piece. I loved, I mean, I had no... Um, I know wishes or beliefs that I could play hockey after, uh, you know, college. I, I played beer league and coached a bunch of uh, high school teams uh, for about eight eight to 10 years afterwards. But it was, I loved every minute of it. It was so much fun. We ended up winning my, my junior year from suspended my freshman year, before my freshman year to we won the championship my junior year as like the, we beat NC State, uh, Clemson, we played Duke, uh, Penn State. So there was a, we were in the ACC East. For club hockey, and it was a heck of a lot of fun. So yeah, I, I I'm blessed to have a you know wild ride from uh, believing I was going to play baseball to that ending, and then just kind of turning my roller hockey into a, an ice hockey path.
0: That is amazing. Oh wow, I'm getting so much insight. This adds some clarity to the ADHD superpower. Not only your vision to see the ice, your vision to see the future. Because what was next for you was information technology, then moving into cybersecurity and seeing sort of what's coming next, what's down the road, and what possibly other people aren't seeing. So you get into cybersecurity, you're working for the Department of Defense. I know a little bit about that story. How did that come to be? Because I think that also involved pressing the damn button or raising your hand at least.
1: It did. Uh, And I will tell you, even getting into computers, I won a fastest typing class in high school in my junior year, and they sent me to this like regional typing. Thing. I don't even remember what it was, and I remember realizing that like not many people had social skills. And it sounds very bad, but like it wasn't a, like wasn't a lot of like the people that I like would normally have hung out with. But I connected with them so well, and it was like I came back. I remember talking to my parents, and I always wanted to be a sports center anchor, but because journalism and English were such a struggle, my dad was like, why don't you like lean in on this tech, you know, computers. And so I went to school with that idea. Like I was going to like web design, um, it, and you know, it was a struggle. It was, I mean, I, for me, thankfully, like I had hockey and fraternity that mandated study hall hours. And then I got out of college and I couldn't get really an it job, you know, right out of college. It's kind of a weird time to graduate in 03 because the internet boom has happened. And so people that didn't go to college were making a hundred grand. People that went to college were actually coming out, like I was coming out with, with software knowledge that was non-existent anymore. And so I worked at UPS delivering packages. Uh, I'm a competitive person. And so I took a Christmas hire job and they had uh, 98 Christmas hires. And they told us on day one, they had three union positions at the end of the, the Christmas hire section. And it was based on the amount of packages you took on the truck, your safety record, your amount of time, and so they had like this chart. And I'm very competitive, and I got the second of those three slots to go Union uh, UPS, which I uh, absolutely loved. Oh my god, I was making ridiculous money, in best shape of my life. I didn't have anything to worry about at home, and I um, was in a line at a grocery store getting milk, and I had my brown shorts, my brown shirt on for UPS, and I happened to have my like shirt unbuttoned, and my fraternity letters were showing. And the guy in front of me that turned around, he's like, "Oh, where'd you go to school?" And we went back and forth. I was like, I'm trying to get in IT. And he's like, I work IT for the government. He's like, could you get a security clearance? I was like, I think so. I was like, I don't have anyone in my family. I was like, I know my, my wife's family has you know some security stuff. And he was like, he asked me two questions. He's like, do you know what a vulnerability is? Nope, never heard of it. Do you know what remediation is? Nope. He's like, so I know you're honest because anyone else is trying to impress me, but probably would have said they knew those things. So come in tomorrow morning for an interview. And I remember I came in, did the interview. It was an overnight help desk tech job in cybersecurity they could get me the clearance and it was $64,000 uh pay degrees so i you know i get out of college you know couldn't get a job then i am making like 98,000 at a ups driver just killing it and i have to like take an overnight help desk job with a security clearance and it was it was one of those things where like i knew like i i remember leaving the interview and i was like I'm taking this job, like I, 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 I have to. But I, you know, I'm newly married at the time. I come back to our like our house that we had just bought, and uh, yeah. So I took that job in cyber, and it was all new. Six months into that job was really where I pressed the damn button, and it was just you know the boss came in on a on a Friday and and said, hey, raise your hand if you can go to Korea on Monday, and uh, there's a whole group of us in the help desk, and I happen to have my hand up first. Sure enough, I went and got a same-day passport that afternoon. I took the longest flight of my life—thirteen hours from, uh, you know, from DC to Atlanta. Atlanta to Seoul, Korea. Uh, I had to get on a high-speed train, which I didn't even know that was like one of the things on my, on my list to go down to this place called Daegu, which is where one of the U.S. military bases was. And each night, I would teach the the course. That night, I would just study everything I needed to teach the next day. One of the things I, I knew early on was that cyber was so new no one in the military signed up for cyber. Like literally one of the jokes was when I went to Iraq the first time, I asked everybody like, how'd you get into this field? There was an entire row that said they just put, they knew iTunes. If you know iTunes, you could handle cybersecurity, run our drone network in a war zone, right? Like that makes sense. Um, But I, uh, that story of, you know, I was in Korea and I, I mean, I had so much fun. I felt really good about it at the end and I flew home and my boss was like, the government lead got feedback from that that course in Korea, and they said they would add from one class a month to four classes a month, only if you're teaching it. We have a new offer letter for you. You're gonna. It was three levels up from my like entry level help desk, and you run the budget, you run the team, and then six months later, uh, I was able to expand that team double the size. And funny enough, uh, the person that hired me in the grocery store ended up working for me. And so in like the coolest way of like, you know, all of that, you know, thank God I raised my hand. I bet on myself. Like literally that was the, I've always just kind of believed in like betting on myself and figuring it out. I grew it to a team of 32 direct reports, 115 people on our team. We ran a $19 million a year budget. I traveled to 54 countries, three trips to Iraq, two to Afghanistan. I had this amazing team. I was, my first 30 hires were all older than I was because no one was going to school for cyber at the time. And you had to have a clearance. But I also was a president of my fraternity at sophomore. And I felt like I ta- I learned how to manage those that were above me to remove my ego, to respect authority, you know, like, and a lot of that played into that journey at the government. And so, yeah, it was nine and a half years of, of, I mean, it was a lot of fun. It was the travel, the, you know, I didn't have kids at the time. So they, they even uh, brought my, my wife at the time, she had to travel with me in the summer because she was a, s- a school teacher. So we got to go to all these different countries together and uh, you know, it's, racked up a lot of miles, I, a lot of merry hot nights. Um, but yeah, all thanks to uh, you know raising my hand and I didn't even have a passport, but I raised my hand and said, uh, I can go to Korea, like let's make it happen.
0: <laughs> it's almost like every step of the way, life was preparing you for that leadership. And that sounds like just a wonderful gift that you have. And that leads to your next chapter, which is right into keynote speaking. You're working with brands like IBM and Dell and Adobe.
1: You know, I had another one of those things where things were getting complacent. Um, I had this amazing team. I got to pick where I flew. uh, And uh, our contract was shifting. We got moved under a different government contract. And it was one of those like moments where I was like, I'm either going to be in cybersecurity for the rest of my life or I need to leave right now. And against every recommendation of every person in my life, I decided to give up my clearance um, and get out of the government space. I loved working in the military, loved the government role I had. Since college, um, I remember, you know, Apple had come out um, and I was very familiar with Guy Kawasaki and he was the you know evangelist there. And so I, when I, when I said I was going to leave the government, I made a commitment to myself. I had all these days off and I was like, I'm not going to take any job that isn't a technology evangelist job because it's the job I always wanted. Right. And I, and I, Took I took many months off, played some poker semi-professionally for a little bit in there. So that was like a little- Okay, <laughs> hold
0: on. I want to stop there because that's 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 key to your story as well. Can you talk about yeah. reading people and the in-person that? Because that, that's- key that, well. that
1: is a- uh, So I started speaking on stages in 2004 for the government because- And I remember this day, like a horrible small room with like more computers and ever, servers, everything going on. And we have like this bake-off where we, we need to win this like $9 million contract. And this just gentleman walks in, who's now you know Chris P, who's uh, is still a friend to this day. He puts his hand on my, sh- on my shoulder and he goes, "You're comfortable talking in front of people. It's kind of what you do with these classes." And I was like, "Yeah, of course. Like you got me." He's gubby. He's like, um, "You're the only non-gray-haired person that we have in this cyber team. I need you to be that like, kind of the face of our team." He's like, "So we're going to send you to like some trainings for you know communication training that you need to pass." But I want you to come back and brief the joint chiefs of staff. I want you to be like kind of the face of this cybersecurity millennial movement. And so that's kind of where I got like my start speaking. Like, you know, I, I was thrown in front of the Pentagon with you know generals in full uniform in the front row. That was kind of like the lead into me wanting to go into to this evangelist role. But the, the poker side was interesting because you know, this is as like the um World Series of Poker is taking off. Like Chris Moneymaker won it in 2010. I started playing poker you know. fairly, you know, I was playing poker in college, uh, you know, nothing professional, but with where I lived in DC and then with all my travel, everywhere I would go, I would just sit down, I would find a, you know, a casino and play some poker. And so when I, when I left my government gig, there was an issue with my clearance and they were like, they had to pay me like 80% of my salary, but I couldn't get another job. One of the jobs I had worked on in Iraq, they couldn't declassify and stuff. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to like lean into playing some more poker. Like we had just had our first kid. Um, and I took third place in a really large tournament in Arizona, uh, and it paid six figures. So I walked. I walked. I remember, you know, got pictures and everything. And I walked in and like to my 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 ex wife now, but my wife's uh, school, and we paid off her student loan in cash. Like that was like a very cool feeling. And then we took the other part and was like, you know what? I'm gonna put this in a separate bank account and let's see if I can, you know, do something with it, have some fun with it. And so. I started playing. I started flying to Vegas on the weekends because I lived in Arizona at the time. so it was a really short forty minute flight. It cost like fifty bucks each way. Um, ended up you know getting a uh, you know sharing a place with some other people that lived in Vegas part-time. And I was the weird kid that was you know sponsored by an online poker company and was horrible at online poker as a millennial. A lot of it was my attention, but really my skill was not math. My skill was not like reading trends. It was reading people. And part of that was because, I went to a, a a boot camp, a four day boot camp that today I still use the skill more than anything else. Uh, it was put on by Joe Navarro. He's a retired FBI agent, and he taught us nonverbal cues and reading body language and understanding like all of the things. How to create a baseline of knowledge and uh, it was a poker focused um, course. And now it's very cool. Like we've been, I've been able to share the stage with him a couple of times. He's a he's a keynote speaker as well. And so like that actually played into a lot for me. You know, And I kind of did that poker thing in between. And then I got this job um, at a data center company. I didn't know really anything about data center, but it was like the first person. And I, funny enough, they would not even offer me the evangelist role. But the guy who was hiring me, his name was Brent. He was like, you are way overqualified for the role we have open. And I believe our company needs this role that you believe you want to have. And I remember going in there like month one. And the CEO was like, yeah, hey, six months from now, come back to me. And if you do what you say you can do like with this training team, like the stuff I had done with the government, um we'll give you that role. And cool enough, like three months later, the CEO came to me and was like, "Yeah, uh, I think you were right. Like you were born to uh, you know create this role. And so I created a role. It was um a dotted line between the CEO. I was reported to the CEO, dotted line to the CIO and the CMO. And that was kind of my first exposure to social as like you know marketing. Um, and it was a, such a fun role. it was it was everything. And we were a startup that was hiring. 12 new hires a week. And we were moving from a data center, old school technology company to a cloud computing company. And so the weird part was everyone we were hiring was in their 20s. Everyone that was kind of like phased out was like had been in that business, heating and cooling and power and like the data center real estate play. And it was one of the hardest cultural norms that we had to work on. And that was like really my main job was the kind of merging of this culture, millennials with different generations. Also kind of, we were using uh, internal social business tools. So I was deploying these tools for our internals teams to collaborate and having 12 new hires a week was like a very, like it was a very intense. And we were like the startup you hear about, like we had food truck Fridays. We had January, the one year the boss came in and was like, I'm tired of people sending emails, disabled email that day, like just disabled across the company. It was like, you have to use your internal social business tools to communicate. Of course, that lasted like a week. And the sales team was like, how do I communicate outside? Like that was like the environment that I was working on. And my kids were born at the time. uh, And I loved it. I worked there uh, two years and 10 days. My face was like on the front of the building. Like I became like kind of like the face of the brand. And I started speaking at a lot of large events. Actually, the largest event to this day still that I ever spoke on was because our CEO was asked to speak at the event. And literally 48 hours beforehand, he was like, PR is driving me nuts. Like We were going public at the time. He's like, I don't want to deal with it. Fanzo, it's yours. And I was like, what do you mean it's mine? It's like, you got Moscone Center, San Francisco, VMware, like full main stage. Okay, I guess I'm going to have to you know, step up. And I was talking about some really boring, like cloud computing, techie, geeky stuff. And then, uh, you know, two years and 10 days after I'd been there, uh, the company got purchased uh, by CenturyLink, but then ended up being Blue Mountain. And their like, first thing on order was like, what is this evangelist guy? Why does he not have any KPIs? Why is he not reporting to anybody other than CEO? What that role needs to leave. And it was weird going into a building with your face on it and having like the CEO come to you and be like, today's gonna be your last day. Like, um, we gotta let you go. But I will say I also got blessed because a, he was one of the smartest guys I've ever met in my entire life. B, he knew I had just had my, my, my kid. And he was like, What's your what's your take home salary every month here at the company? And I told him, and he was like, "I'm going to cover that with my startups. I want you to advise my startups for the next six months. I want you to work with them." He's like, and then figure out. He goes, "Everyone's been telling you you should be an entrepreneur. You should." He's like, "But I also know like this is a little bit of a you know unexpected. I mean, it was, but as unexpected. <laughs> I mean, talking about it, it was like it was super unexpected, and it was very nice golden parachute. Like I was very blessed that you know George um, did that for me, and so like that's how I became." entrepreneur it was not by will or because I hated the man. You know, I hear that a lot. Like I loved my enterprise gig at the government, like loved my job. Uh loved the startup I worked for. I had such a great time. I was employee 256, which is kind of cool because computer 256. Uh we got these like rugby jerseys that had our our employee number on them. That was because our the CEO was a huge rugby fan. Um, And when I left we had 616 employees. And so I got to really see like a lot of that world and and during that time I I won an award, which you kind of mentioned before. It took me a long time to get there. Um, I won an award for top 25 social business leaders of the future, put out by The Economist, and it was sponsored by IBM. And so IBM, part of that deal was they were going to send you around to six IBM events uh, as an influencer, which I had to Google what the word influencer was whenever that got presented, and I got to go to two TED Talks. And that happened as the data center – before I left the data center, but as I was leaving the data center – and so when I left, I had this like amazing relationship with these like brands that I didn't even know what to do with. I, I I was like, sure, I'll start like a marketing agency. And I started one with a friend and I hated it. I despised it. It was just not my just not my skill set. I but I didn't really still like crazy to cre- think about, it. like I just still didn't really understand. And so I decided I was like, you know what? Like I'm gonna just lean in on this like influencer speaking side because I'm getting the roles, like I was doing it, but I wasn't doing it full time. And now, you know, six and a half years later, it's what I've done full time now, you know, 60 gigs a year, you travel to 76 countries and um, you know, nothing else I want to do for the rest of my life. I absolutely love the the speaking job that I have. But uh, yeah, talking about it was a weird, uh, lots of, you know, and I think you, you said up pretty well, like a lot of things in my life at the time made no sense on, because like, I mean, if you look at like my, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Nothing on my <laughs> trajectory makes a lot of sense. But I feel like the skills, the roles and, you know, also I mean, building relationships. Like my CEO, like the joke was like, he's the hardest, toughest person to get along with. And I became friends because I was the one that like I showed up, I delivered. I wasn't afraid to admit when I was wrong. I owned my mistakes. Um, and that allowed me to have a relationship that ultimately when I'm getting like laid off for this company being purchased, he gives me a golden parachute that really gave me like the freedom and security and also like the belief in like good people, right? Like up until then, I kind of looked at like, you know, people that had money, made money and didn't give money out, like weren't like, you know, making favors. But it was definitely, you know, he'll, he'll say to this day because he's very proud. He's like, I didn't make a favor, Fanzo. Like I I knew you were going to help my startups and it was, you know, it was the role that you needed. But for me, it was like the, you know, the blanket that I, I didn't really you know, realize that I needed. So, yeah, that's the, the wild journey of a multi-hyphenate. That's for sure. <laughs>
0: It's so relatable. Yes, it, that transition for you was a lot of years ago, but it, over this past year with the pandemic, so many people, myself included, can relate to walking into the office on that one unexpected day and saying, this is going to be your last day. And, you know, it's what do you do next? What happens after that? It, it, as you talk about things just leading up and up and up, going to those things like those TED Talks in person and seeing those and being like, well, I'm I'm already doing that. Did that play into
1: to, to your choice a little bit as well? So, you know, I didn't really realize that speaking was a full-time job. Um, I knew author friends that were, and I say friends, that this, that's authors that I followed on Twitter. So they were not friends at the time. They were really close friends now, like some of my best friends in the world now. But they were just people I followed on Twitter. And because I didn't read, right, reading still a struggle for me. I, if, it, if it had an audio book, I would, I would consume an audio book in a minute, write a review, um because i had friends that spoke that were authors i assumed you had to write a book to become a speaker and i remember telling like friends well i'll never do that full time but i want a job that lets me speak as like my job because i'm not gonna write a book because i don't like i don't like reading books so like writing a book just sounds like even more painful than than that and and going to the ted talks i mean uh brian kramer who's uh now one of my dearest friends it was his ted talk and i um, I had met him uh, a year earlier at an event, just like, and we kind of hit it off. And I, we just were like, he was like, Hey, I want to, I want to get you more involved with IBM. I want you to, he was the, the lead agency at the time. And I went there and I remember talking to his parents and I was giving his parents problem because I was like, you know, I love your son, but you named his first name, you spelled his first name wrong. Cause he's B-R-Y-A-N, I'm B-R-I-A-N. Uh, and we have like a running joke on that now, many years later. And I remember the, uh, there was there was four others that were doing TED Talks that day, and three of them I knew. And actually, they we're all still good friends to this day, and this was you know, 2014. Um, and it was a little bit of like an aha, I could do this. But the other part of it was kind of, they were all doing a book. I was creating content, hosting my own podcast, editing my own podcast, uploading my own podcast. I was doing live video, and I, at the time, was like scared to believe that I needed to either niche down to only a speaker or that by being a speaker, I had to write a book. For me, it was a very big thing of like, I'm not sure how that's going to really work. And uh, I mentioned Brian Kramer. He was the one I saw at TED Talk. The very next event I went to, uh, a gentleman named Jay Baer, who is a world-renowned speaker, author. I mean, uh, he literally treated me like I was his best friend. He invited me to this dinner that we went to that night uh, with a lot of people that were in marketing and social media and I just kind of shared my background, like talked a little bit, of, like what we shared here, and he was just like, "Dude, you're born for that stage." He's like, um, "You're not gonna need a book." He's like, "You're gonna have to do it the hard way." He's like, we "Eventually, gonna need to write a book." Uh, he was—I remember him he was like, hes like, two years, and you're gonna have to have this book." And I remember I was like, oh, two two years? Okay, sure." But um, I owe a lot to you know Jay being like the—he was just kind of like, "Yeah, you know, get on these stages," but he's like, "Figure out a way to like make money along with it." And so I was doing a lot, like 2013, 2014, I was doing pretty much paying my bills with influencer work. And I was speaking for free to get exposure to be an influencer. And this was before influencer was anything, right? It wasn't, you know, it, was, it wasn't it was even attached to a celebrity at the time, right? There was not even a, a crossover. But I, I feel like it was the, what I found was people were blown away what I, by what I could do on stage. But they were also confused on my ability or desire to continue to do the other things that most other speakers were not. And at the time, it was like, Ooh, this might be my like differentiator. Like, this is the thing that when a brand hires me, like, I'm gonna do tweets. I'm gonna do a video monologue beforehand. I'm gonna do these other things, and that started to catch a little bit. And I was like, ooh, I might not have to write a book. Like, I might be able to. I might be able to make this a career without writing a book. And I hear this all the time. Like, you know, awards don't pay your bills, and like the amount of followers, the bank doesn't take that for paying your rent. And I agree, 100. Like, I'm not. A, but that award, that Economist Top 25 Social Business Leader Award. It, it, it allowed me to get recognized outside my company. It gave me access to these events that I would have never been a part of. And it kind of put me into this little network of marketers that like really kind of brought me along and were like, we're going to introduce you here. And then eventually you're going to be bigger than us. And like, that's kind of how they like always kind of like positioned it. And, uh, you know, I'm very blessed that that kind of worked out that way, but you know, it's, it's where now for me, like giving back and helping others and really wanting to carve my own way, but also not make people Feel like they have to do things the same as everyone else and i feel like the overall package that i was able to offer is how i competed like i couldn't compete i didn't have a best-selling book i didn't run a massive marketing agency i didn't have like a lot of the ceo credentials but i knew what i could provide as a whole for like you know those that i was working with and i quickly learned the importance of becoming friends uh and i think i i attribute this actually to my government days where i became i understood and this is my dad you know, my dad telling me, I remember my dad in high school saying, you know, son, before you pitch, before you open your mouth, when you walk into an, an office, I want you to scan for something that you can connect with. He's like, it could be a baseball card, it could be a picture. And he's and I remember my dad like hammering that and like to the point where we're like my brothers and I used to joke. Like we'd walk into like a hotel room. I'm like, Dad, there's a photo, you know, like we were like mock my dad like teaching us this. But it became like my you know strength and it was in every job, every role. I'm going to work harder than everyone else. And I'm going to be I'm going to care more about everyone around me than everyone else was. And if I do that, I can kind of hide the fact that I might not be smarter than them. Right. And it was that was a lot of like my ADHD, um, you know, kind of everyone telling me, you know, like, imagine if you applied yourself or what would you do? So, um, yeah, that's kind of how I landed in kind of speaking. And it was. A lot of it was, you know, opportunity, raising my hand, jumping on these different roles Uh, and then really making the most of those. You know, I remember I came in a day early for that TED Talk and one of the best decisions I made because I got to meet his parents in the elevator, Brian Kramer's parents. And so we hit it off. And then when we got there, the early I got to go behind the screen And I got to see all the people setting up. And then I got made made relationships with the person that was running Ted and the person that was doing the IBM side. And it was all because I showed up a day early with just simply the idea was like, I'm going to be around and I'm going to try to connect with as many people as I could. And, you know, it's kind of paid off for me, you know, along the way.
0: Yeah. I mean, you keep talking about, you know, feeling like you're not smart enough and sort of having to hide it with these other things. Well, first of all, finding something to relate or, or something relatable, um, in each situation that you walk into and, and making those kind of human connections is so important. But I think, and it, it's your ADHD superpower again, it's the vision, the vision to see what others don't and then to be able to articulate that so well and so quickly. I think that's that's a huge strength and it's so wonderful to hear and hopefully is inspiring other people to take advantage of a similar vision that they might have. I know that there's a a small community growing around you with ADHD who have felt thankful and supported that you've shared your story. You have an ADHD creator coin at rally.io. Can you talk a little bit about creator coins, creator economy, and how that fits in sort of your plans for the future?
1: Yeah. So, And I'll connect the dots in the 80s. So I was diagnosed at 31, you know, for ADHD. And so it was nine years ago now. Um, but I was at the data center, right? So like in the in like, in like the history of that, like the story that I was in the data center and the day I was diagnosed, I mean, I know what I was wearing. I know where my Jeep was parked. I know it, it changed my, I, that day, I remember, feel, it's the only time in my entire life I felt like there was, something was removed off my shoulders and it was actually something I didn't even know was there. And it was just this like, I felt like I was always broken, even as a success. I mean, I was successful at everything I did after college. Like school was where I really struggled to, you know, pass the grades and meet all these requirements. But everything I've done in my entire, you know, career, I find a way to be successful, right? Even when I started back over at a data center, started back at like a training job, and I was able to move back up. Like I've, I've kind of proven that to myself. But still, there was always these things of like, I don't read enough books. Or imagine if I applied myself. And so that day being diagnosed, it was. I mean, for me, I, I say now, like, it was a day where I went from feeling broken to just feeling different. And, and I remember the doctor being like, your brain works different and yours works really different. He's like, yours even works different from most ADHDers. And he's like, you know, you gotta get creative. And my youngest brother had been diagnosed with ADHD, thank God, because I don't believe to this day, I would have still went and got diagnosed. We actually had opposite shades of ADHD in many ways where his was a lot of it was tied to, like he loved reading and was great at school, but he like lacked focus and motivation me was i couldn't turn my brain off at night and i couldn't stand reading or focusing and i would like you know lose track and and now i know a lot more um but because my brother i remember one day we was just like he's like i was like man i just can't turn my brain off he's like you should just go to the doctor and ask him like he's like the medicine's working for me and i went in there and like i mean i it changed my my trajectory but i will say like that was 31 you know i had my daughters and you know for the next four years or so i talked about being Diagnosed ADHD, but it wasn't like a thing. Like it wasn't like a, you know, it wasn't like. And then I, I put it into my intro for one of my talks, and that was the day everything changed on that because someone came up to me afterwards. Uh, And actually, it was funny. It was in the intro. I did my whole talk, and like the three questions I did on stage afterwards, all three were about ADHD, which was like, was like, what in the world's going on here? And a lady came on uh, the side of the stage. You know, you have like a line of people that are coming to talk to you after you get off stage, and she had her son on Facetime, and she's like. you know, my son has Asperger's and, um, he's struggling. He doesn't want to go out with his friends. He's withdrawn from college. Um, and the way that you've just shared, you know, unapologetically your ADHD stories and like this mom, she's like, could you talk to him? And it's like kind of awkward. Like, she's like, has the phone out. And I was like, sure. And I kind of, can I hold the phone? I was like, Hey, what's up, man? Like, you know, and I'm wasn't that much, you know, I'm 10 years older. So at the the time I was probably 15 years older. Um, and I just shared, like, Hey, like, You're going to, you're going to realize it at some point that being different is really how we stand out and the world hasn't been made for us. But if you're willing to own the fact that it hasn't been made for you, then you can kind of start moving forward and get this like newfound freedom. And, um, and I was like, Hey, let's connect on LinkedIn. We exchange our information with a parent. And I remember her like giving me this hug and she's like, you've, you've changed my family's like, look at this. Like, and I remember feeling like, I didn't feel, I felt like I didn't, like I I was like, I didn't do it. All I did was share. And I, and still at this point, I still hadn't figured out how to redesign my life. Like I was diagnosed ADHD. I was taking Adderall and I was kind of like just leaning in and like kind of going. Being diagnosed allowed me to forgive myself for feeling like I wasn't good enough. And but it was that moment where I was like, you know what, I'm going to have this in every intro. For the rest of my life, and it is in every intro that I've ever had, uh, ever since that day with the, with um, with the parent and Patrick, who was the kid on the on the uh, phone. We're still we connected on LinkedIn, on Facebook. Uh, every once in a while, we'll go back and forth. He works in network administration, and he's doing he's thriving. And um and so for me, as of this last, you know, uh, I got d- separated, divorced, and for the first time in my life, I had to live on my own. You know, and I had you know, co parenting. And I had to do a lot of self-awareness, a lot of self-assessment on like everything. I never lived, I, I graduated, I proposed in college. We got married right out of college. Like I literally had lived my um and along with that, I started to really just become honest with myself on my ADHD and was like, wow, like it's impacting a lot more than I thought it was. And I need to become a little bit more aware of all of these things. And I started studying more and I started, you know, really making ADHD one of the things I wanted to care about. And and I'll say when I when I left to go on my own, people asked like, Brian, are you talking about marketing or technology? And I was always like, this was like my, my, my soapbox was, I want to make the world care more about each other. I'll own a company. I'll do like merchandise. I'll do something at some point. Until then, I'm just going to kind of like lean into all the things that are going on. And then in 2013, I made the commitment, uh, I'm going to build a community online. With the goal of never monetizing it for ten years, I was like, I'm a, I want, I want, like, I want to build a community of just, I want to give, you know, I read Gary Vaynerchuk's book, Jab 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 Right Hook, um, and so that all kind of spiraled into this last three years of like really just becoming really aware of my ADHD, and then also my youngest, my middle daughter being diagnosed ADHD, and now seeing it through a dad's eyes, and having this like, I mean, I, I would have nights where I would wake up so mad that no one discovered my ADHD beforehand and I'd just be so mad at the world. And I'm like, imagine what I would have been able to accomplish if like if someone would have like, you know, just let me figure out what, that my brain works different. But then I also realized that like I charted my own path and I'm beginning to figure out, you know, like part of this is that piece. And I also now know I have to, I have a chance with my daughter who's nine to really be able to look at it differently because I mean, interestingly enough, I was born in 81, right? And like, for me, it's weird to blame and say, why didn't anyone tell me? Because still to this day, we don't know how the best way is to treat it. And we're still figuring it out. And so it's weird to blame something that even if I was treated or if I didn't know back then, I probably wouldn't, probably wouldn't have helped me, probably would have, in all intents and purposes, probably held me back or given me a crutch or an excuse. Um, And so when I had uh, the opportunity to get a coin, a creator coin, uh, I applied and the first thing when they were like, it has to be three to five characters. The first thing I thought of was ADHD. And I was like, I, I, I wanted to be a part of conversations. Um, I, I love because the coin, you know, every conversation I've had since I've got the coin, it's been part of the conversation and it's not because it's defined me, but it's because I just want to make sure that like, Hey, let, let's have these, these conversations around mental health and, and ADHD. And then I like, I was like, you know what? I, my last name is Fanzo. It has the right amount of characters. Um, you know, the, 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 the label speak um, as a speaker was available, and I went to my inner circle and I threw out the you know the three names and like everyone was like, "Dude, ADHD is you, you're ADHD," and so that was February right or we March March we launched the coin and I will tell you like crypto was not my like finance crypto not my space um, monetization like brand partnerships um sponsorships of podcast. that's been where my world has been. I've been a I'm a weird entrepreneur in the sense of like a speaker that I monetize through B2B, not B2C, right? Like I didn't, I didn't sell courses or products or downloads. I didn't do like direct to my community. I was more like, hey, Adobe, sponsor this so I can continue to give these people free stuff. And it's always been my way. And I, I think a little bit is because that's where my background was. Like I was more comfortable talking to IBM to give me a budget than I was, you know, going to ask someone else for a budget. But I also knew there was like this community of people that wanted more from me and they kept asking for like products or services or I buy this or I'll do that. And I didn't have it. Right. And so when the coin came along, it was like, wait a second, I can help build this up together. And Kevin, I, I, you were one of my early supporters and I am very blessed for that. And we've been able to reap a little bit of those rewards now, which is uh, is a nice little uh, benefit. And that all kind of spun into this, you know what, I'm going to lean into the creator economy. And at the same time, social audio clubhouse had come out. And the weird part of like my background as I was a speaker, I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but when I didn't have a book, I knew I needed to have something else that I could leverage that helped me stand out. And live video became that thing in 2013. So 2013 and 2017, I was probably one of the most, if not most popular business live streamers that were out there doing, you know, uh, I mean, I did 3,600 live streams just myself. I helped launch IBM, Dell, Samsung, the Super Bowl. I did all of their very first Facebook Lives. All of their, I was like on camera. I would teach them. I would be the guinea pig, and I would say, "Now it's yours." Now put me on stage so I can speak. Right, like that was like my, like my little segue. Uh, and so when audio came out, when when uh, Clubhouse came out uh, in the fall last year, you know. Being, you know, living alone, you know, we have a pandemic going on. I'm a speaker. I've traveled my entire life. First time since I graduated college that I didn't travel more than 30 weeks. uh, And I traveled eight weeks, right, for that year. And that social audio platform, you know, came on and it was, it was like everything I didn't know I needed in social that uh, really presented this like intimate conversation with people, but also serendipity for allowing me to discover people that I wasn't connected with on social, but I aligned with. And so it was kind of like a perfect storm in the sense of social audio. You know, we're coming out of the pandemic. I'm doing a lot of virtual stuff. Uh, The creator coin comes out and I'm just looking at like what all of my stuff is. And was like, you know what? Really where I can feel like I can help the most is like going all in on this creator economy idea. And in a weird way, it kind of connects all the way back to everything I've ever done because it's this emergence of like how do we you know, remove tech, but make tech enabled, right? How do we help humanity? People do what they love. You know, you have many, many talents, right? You were playing the piano as we we came on. I love that you're writing your show. And I think for me, when I look at the creator economy, it's the first time that I've ever felt like we're creating a world or a business world that allows people to do what they love and pay the bills and not be a starving artist and do it in a way that builds everybody up along with them. Right. So like the coin, the thing, the coin that like, really, why it to me was such a big difference, right? Like than anything else I've ever done was the coin. Isn't about someone sending me money and me rising, right? The coin was, Hey, purchase this coin and hold on to it. And as we rise, we rise together. Right. And so Kevin, you were, you were early adopter uh, on the coin and you got in on early. And, and like for me, it was like the opposite of a fan club right in 2006 i joined dave matthews band warehouse i'm still a member of the dave matthews band warehouse i've been to more concerts than well my ex-wife's been to 86 concerts i've been in the 60s of dave matthews concerts but i've been a member since 2006 the only thing i get is early access to tickets i've not reaped any rewards from best-selling albums and global sold-out concerts for 15 years right and it was it was always a kind of like a disconnect right you were a fan and like and to me it was part of why like fans didn't want most bands to make it big right like we want you to stay indie like even though like we know that you're like goal like there's like this like weird world because it's like you're with us and we're going with you when you're indie right like when we buy an album we know that you the album is going to you and i feel like the creator economy is the is the way that we what we need because in that sense like uh i mean one of the band, portugal the man is one of the uh, of the coin holders on rally uh, and they're a large band and they never had a fan club because they didn't want to like monetize like another a piece but now you get access to the band's recordings uh backstage you get if you buy a ticket for their concert and you're holding a certain amount of their coin you get to go in the vip section before anyone else comes out you so there's all these things not to mention the coin's going up in value, so your return on investment is also going up. And so, um, to me, it's been—it's a lot of story of my career, right? Like I—you would ask me a year ago if I'd be playing in kind of like a crypto creator economy space. I'm like, that's ah, probably not where I'm going to be. Like I—I'm doing virtual events, and and I love live video, and and the social audio comes. But it really is the all-encompassing of all the things I like to do. And so, yeah, uh, ADHDcoin.com is where it's at. We just hit our we got over three hundred um, backers now, and uh, we just had over one hundred thirty thousand coins in circulation. and And the cool part is, you know. Forty-five days or so, I believe. Uh, the coin was worth like a dollar eighty, a dollar sixty-five or something. Uh, and we we topped over five dollars this week, right? And um, and seeing people like yourself and those to be able to reap those rewards and 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 we're, and this is only the beginning, right? We haven't even rolled out a lot of the things that I'm going to attach to it. Um, it's it's probably the most exciting thing that I've ever been a part of. Which I've been a part, I've done a lot of cool things, but I think for me, it's it's finally that connection to where. That rising tide lifts all boats, and I've always heard that with community. I've always believed in it, but I've always struggled to find a way to balance that with like monetization and, and things. So, um, yeah, that, that's where we're at there with ADHD Coin. That rally company, you know, they're backed by A16Z, uh, which is you know large venture firm. They also happen to back Clubhouse, which is kind of a, a cool uh, connection there. And you know, for me, it's as much about like. I want to work with everyone that's not marketers, like everyone that's not, everyone like yourself, right? You're talented individuals that, that, Hey, how do I create something around what I love to do that doesn't make me have to like make a course or all these other things around it. Like let people invest in us. And it really comes down to like that a thousand true fan model, right? Like you don't need, and I think this is like my futurist hat, like um, is, I believe that's where we're going. We're moving towards like a a, a switch towards micro community and, and realizing that, we got lost a little bit trying to get more followers and more gigs and more customers and more clients and not realizing that we don't need more, more, more. Like we, we need to understand what is enough. And then we need to understand how to double down and own and and go through. And so for me, like I, I put it out there, my hockey number was 93. And so I said, you know, my goal with the backers on the coin was, you know, 2,093 backers is the, is the goal. Uh, So like 2,093 true fans of investing in the coin. And then I can, you know, do what I do and, and share and give and, and hopefully, you know, amplify, inspire, do a lot more in the mental health space, um, you know, and even to the point where I, I told my speaker agent, like, my goal with the coin is so that I can do more free gigs for more nonprofits, for more, you know, it's my, that's really what it's going to, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to be like my get rich scheme. It's more of like the, it's going to give me the leverage to be able to, hey, I don't have to do five paid gigs a month. When two of them I only want to do and I'm doing them on discounts, I can do three of them and I can take two gigs that I know that those people need to hear my voice and hear what I'm doing. And so um, it's a fun ride. And I, I truly appreciate uh, your support, too. You've, uh, you've been an early adopter, even a supporter on Clubhouse, but also a supporter of the coin. So I appreciate that.
0: Well, and the thing that I think draws a lot of people in is the fact that it's it really is this community building. It's it it's not so self-serving. You really genuinely, I know this because I see it week after week after week, especially on Clubhouse. You you reach out um to encourage people and maybe it's their first time on Clubhouse and maybe they haven't been on a stage before, but you're in rooms like with with Andy Enriquez uh for over 30 weeks now, just you know, helping people tell their stories. If if somebody's just starting out, somebody's on Clubhouse. What are sort of the essential elements? And maybe they're looking through their life as to, to, to maybe, all right, what are the stories that I can start to tell? What are the essential elements that make up a great story? So that's question one. And then the second question is, as we head into the future and off of Clubhouse, you're one of the few people I know who's done a hybrid presentation because connecting with your audience is so important. So where do you see that going? Those are two things. But for the person who's just starting out, what makes a great story?
1: So you know, I think this is a this is a, I, I think storytelling, the art of storytelling, the studying of storytelling, is the greatest thing in the world to study because the beauty is it's never perfect, which I've always like loved anything that's not perfect, um, because you know you can study you know everyone from Martin Luther King to you know you can go Steve Jobs to Barack Obama to you can go all these great storytellers and. You change the variables, right? You move Martin Luther King's talk from where it was given to somewhere else, right? The the variables change, the atmosphere changed. Uh, you know everything from Simon Sinek's TED talk, right? Those that don't know that like that the why aspect of his TEDx talk wasn't even a TED talk was literally like a four minute chunk of a, a larger fourteen minute talk that happened to be like what set him off. And so I think when we look at storytelling, I think the the true key is being able to be willing to like kind of sit in your story, understand like. aspects that are there and then I love you know kind of throwing everything at a wall and you know one of the things I often and it's probably the thing that I maybe hit home the most with those that I coach those I talk with is I'm a big believer in every time you're telling a story every time you're doing content you define what success looks like ahead of time because I feel like in this world right now people will do some great things and I'm like oh that was successful like no not really I was like well what was success look like for you like well, I didn't really have that planned out. I'm like, well, how are you ever going to be successful if you didn't ever put success, like paint a picture? And I, and I always say paint a picture because I actually like on my iPad, on sticky notes, I will like, I'm like, this is what I believe. Like, this is what I want. And so when you're thinking about that from a storytelling perspective, think about it from like, that. do I want an emotional connection? Do I want to inspire people to learn more about me? Do I want to just make people realize that you're not alone? Like and And like, when you define success, And then you look at your story and kind of throw it all out there, all the aspects of it. You can now start pulling apart pieces of it and say, well, that doesn't need it. That's not needed because to get me towards that success. And then I think it's just, it's really is pressing the damn button. It's telling your story as many times as you can in the many different formats. I mean, everything from like, I I will, uh, I don't think I've ever said this on clubhouse, which is funny. Uh, And you would know, Kevin, you've been supporting and been a lot of my rooms. I always look at friends and speakers on how they order fast food on if they're a good storyteller. And so I'm a picky eater, uh, not picky, but I'm a selective eater. And so like, I don't like any vegetables on my sandwiches, no matter what sandwich I'm having. So no matter where I'm going, I'm having to, you know. And when I ask someone to order my food for me, the way they position the variables of change that are the most important parts of the story determines if my food is going to come out right or not come out right. And it sounds kind of crazy, but if you think about it, when you're and I hear this all the time. Like, I, like my daughters are even aware of it because, like, they'll sit in the car and I'll hear someone order, and I'm like, "They're never going to get that right because it's like, I want a number two double cheeseburger, and it's like, I want a diet coke, I want French fries, and uh, you know, no lettuce, tomato, out of frosty." And but it was so buried, and so like understanding, like I'm like, "Hey, I want a number two, no lettuce, no tomato." Um, and it's just ketchup, right? And and kind of, and like so. If you think about it for like a storytelling, in a weird way, our ability to make sure the most important aspects of what we're talking about are what the audience takes away to me is what makes a great storyteller. And I will say, like, I love Instagram Stories for throwing stories out there. I love live video. I enjoy, you know, as much as I, said, I don't like forced conversation. I enjoy. You know, I was standing downstairs this morning um, in line to get some breakfast uh, at the hotel I'm staying at, and. Uh, the person that worked there, like, could come over and he's like talking about Pittsburgh sports because I had a Steeler hat on, and I was like, the interesting part was like, I'm in Northern Virginia, so it's not like a Pittsburgh area, and there's a part of a story that I'm looking forward to telling in, in the near future about like Pittsburgh fandom. And my my I didn't realize that not all moms didn't wear you know the the team colors to church until I went to Virginia Beach and realized like my mom stood out because I, in Pittsburgh like that's just kind of what you do. And like that story has some like massaging that's needed. And I took the opportunity this morning to like, I was like, actually, you know what's something funny? I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. And I literally just told that part of the story and he was like, Oh my God. He's like, and he puts his arm around me. He's like, let me tell you a story about a Pittsburgh fan that came in here. And he was able to draw in on our reference. So now it like confirmed my story. It also allowed me to get kind of like, Ooh, I might be able to even use his like aspect of what he just threw in there as part of like my relatability factor and so, like that to me is, you know, when we look about storytelling, it's you know it is about testing, it's about tweaking, it's about kind of living in your own. Yes, you know, beginning, middle, and end. And yes, you don't want to leave people down in a place that they can't handle. But I think more so than all of that is you kind of have to, you know, get used to it. And I think the other part of it is you have to believe your story matters. And you know, everyone that's listening to this right now, if you don't believe your story matters, I'm gonna tell you it does, right? Like that, if there's anything you can take away from this, is I'm giving you permission to tell your story because. Right now we are dealing with bad news, fake news, coronavirus news, everything news. And the only way we break through that, the only way we cut through all of that is it's not giving that more attention. Like that's all that stuff is given plenty of attention. Like it's, and all that does is amp up all this noise. We have to get great people telling great stories and doing great things. And, you know, it's it's the mantra of my book. It's the mantra of my keynote is that the ways of the old are over, right? My dad raised me, son. Put your head down, work hard, and you'll get rewarded. And unfortunately, today, you're letting your work do the talking for you. Just doesn't work anymore, right? There are people that are going to drown you out with social media and, and fakers, and your your the people that are your competitors are going to buy a Google ad that's going to be above yours. And you might be the greatest hard worker and greatest person, but if you're not telling your story, it's really not going to stand out. And that's really where I, you know, I. I'm not hard or like direct on many things like I'm a big like optimist but the thing that I will I I put out there is if you are waiting for your work to do your to- tell your story for you in 2021 and 2020 beyond you're going to be out of business you're going to be out of a job you're going to feel as though why does no one know all the great things that I'm doing and so that's kind of how that you know kind of storytelling you know, connects for me. It's kind of like the beauty of, you know, the pieces and even connects to your second question, like where are we going, right? The future side, um, this hybrid world, you know, I look at events and, you know, I've said this, like, it was funny. Like my dad actually is, is the quote that I'm probably most famous for this one quote where my dad, I was on a Google Hangout and I was hosting it and I was interviewing this David Mirren Scott, who's a big sales leader, world-renowned author, you know, investor, one of the first investors in HubSpot, uh, became a great friend of mine now. Uh, He's on Tony Robbins stage every time. And I was interviewing him, and my dad texted me, and I remember, like, text comes up, and, and I just, and my dad's like, son, I love all these sales things that this guy's talking about. He's like, but you just need to know that all that stuff he's talking about, nothing you do online will ever replace a handshake. And the text comes up, and I'm like, David, you know what, I gotta read this out loud. My dad just texted me, and I believe my dad wrote this because he believes I disagree. So let me put this out there, and I read it like literally verbatim on the live show. And I was like, I could not agree more with my dad wholeheartedly that I don't believe anything we're doing online replaces a handshake. I was like, but I will caveat, and I will say if you invest in people and social and relationships and community online, you will have the opportunity to have more handshakes and then turn some handshakes into hugs and selfies. And I've said, you know, of course, I'm a millennial. I want hugs and selfies. And that thing caught, I mean, it was, I mean, I was quoted on that for, and this was 2013, like crazy enough, right? So like now we fast forward to 2021 and people are like, hybrid is the best of both worlds. And like, you know, we figured out what virtual was. and Now we got Zoom fatigue and really it still comes down to those basic principles, in my opinion. Like we have to, we have to really make the most of when we're in person with people because we've now realized how much we value family and, and home time. Um, you know, we've all been on this wheel that we kind of got this reset. But I also believe what we do online needs to be 364 days of community that's around that one day that we're offline, right? Or the two days that we're offline. And so like my prediction in the future is, you know, brands, industries, associations, right? I was just at the National Speakers Association event this past weekend. And, you know, truthfully, I had a couple of people reach out to me and said, Brian, when you spoke on the virtual natural, uh, you know, NSA event last year, I had more access to you and more time with you. There was only 300 or so people in there, right? They they limited it based, or 600 people, I think. Um, they limited it because of COVID. And there was something to be said about, like, as much as we love offline events, and like we love running into people, like, we want to connect. I mean, Kevin, the amount of hours you and I have connected, shared stories, like, I, we would have to probably go 25 events in person together before we would know each other the way we know each other. And, like, that, to me, is the essence of where we have to think about this, where we need to be able to really help others see that, right? And, the Yes, social audio was kind of like our vehicle for that, but I don't think it has to be social audio. I think it can be whichever you know medium matters the most to people. I will say, I mean, people that are listening to this, you're already a fan of podcasts, but I've, I, I mean, I was hooked. I remember 2008, 2007, I think it was 2008. I was having my commute got extended, and it was a lot further of a drive. And I remember someone sent me a link on this on this like file share, and it was to my BlackBerry. And they like, plug your headphones. I didn't even have headphones for my BlackBerry. I had like fine headphones with this BlackBerry. And they're like, you can listen to this like sports conversation whenever you want. And I remember putting my ears and it was like, and they called it a podcast. I think they called it an RSS podcast at the time. And I remember being like, this is the coolest thing ever. But then you like, get radio. And then I started listening to more podcasts, more podcasts. And I will say, I, I haven't mentioned this the whole time, but like throughout my ADHD, the audio format has been my secret weapon. When people ask like, Brian, how do you stay on top of all the trends? It's listening to podcasts. Brian, how do you get content out the way you do? It's cause I create podcasts. Uh, Brian, how have you like emerged in 2021? I've been all in on social audio and it's that intimacy of audio. It's the feeling of connection. It's the excitement of of us being able to like let our walls down. Like you can't mail it in, you can't outsource it. Like whenever I, I know that when Kevin raises his hand and we're coming up and we're sharing on stages together, I know you're sitting there real time having a conversation with me as much as I love Instagram, as much as LinkedIn has closed 60% of my business. I don't like half the time, like someone's commenting, like it could be their assistant that's commenting, right? I don't even like have that relationship. And so I look at the future as this, like, you know, it's, it's actually the name of one of my talks. It's called shrink the distance, whatever we can do online to shrink the distance between us and others. So that when we do meet offline, we can just take off and run. I think that's the prediction we're going to see things like AR and VR are going to explode in that. They're going to help us with do that as scary as it is for everyone. I mean, we just, I mean, Jeff Bezos and Branson just went to the, went to the space. So like uh, when I say AR and VR are coming, they're they're coming um, in a way that is exciting. Uh, 5G technology, which will be what you think your smartphone is fast now, um, you know, it's going to be, I think, 15 times faster, uh, in many cases, 100x faster for like devices. So we're going to be able to get more information to doctors and, and medicine and all of these uh, connection points. And I think all of that is going to be exciting only if we can boil it back down to this idea of shrinking the distance between you know us and those that we're trying to connect with online. So. That's my very long-winded answer to your questions. Love your question. You set me up for success because you know me so well, but uh, I appreciate you letting me kind of ramble on those.
0: That is a wonderful answer and, and so true. And I, and I have to 100% agree in, in in terms of, I think that's where we're headed. And this is what, what I'm doing with the show I'm writing is again, if you can focus on a great story and then have all of those other cool elements as well, AR and VR, the experience for your audience, and that's really who, who we're telling this for, is going to be so enhanced and so 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 connected um, that it, that it will shine. And, and so it won't be about the tech; it will be about the story. It will be about the heart and the connection, as you say. And and again, shrinking that distance.
1: And, you know, it's like for those that have a cell phone right now, like you don't go and like look outside the window for a tower and be like, I need to make sure that tech that tower, you know, the cell phone tower. You know, is in proximity, like, you know, the tech that we went from phone lines and power lines to them disappearing, right? Like, for me, that study t- storytelling element, I believe, like, where I study great storytelling is comedians, it's Broadway shows, it's TV. Like, and I will say, like, the things that I've picked up the most everything from character development to understanding how to bring someone on a journey to understanding how to relate sometimes using an emotion that you don't really want someone to have, but you need to use that emotion to get someone to get to the emotion you want them to have. All of that is from studying nothing to do with business, nothing to do with marketing, really nothing to do with keynote speaking for all intents and purposes. And I just wanna put that out there because I love what you're doing. I love like I think it's also why we can connect on a level of, you know, relatability and also understanding like, you know, I'm I have so much respect for creatives that are that have talents like i can't sing i can't dance like i like there are a lot of this like i can't draw i so like in a a world like i'm a music i love music i listen to music so much because i have no musical talent like i've always like i respect the craft so much right like i don't have a design talent i i I can i can handle tech but like the design side i've always struggled with so like when i hire a design person they're always like brian why aren't you giving me more advice i'm like you're the creative I want you to do what you do best and I am very good at removing myself from that and I think that's kind of this beauty too where we're moving because the text's going to be removed the text's going to remove itself right it's going to the early adopters we're going to have to deal with all this nonsense just like that podcast right like could you imagine like I, I don't know like, people that don't know what it was like to, to create a podcast back then like it was you had to like Decompile a file. You had to tag it with all of these things. You had to encrypt it. You had to upload it into this RSS server. Then you had to click it over to this this other one while it's actually transferring. You had to put the information in, and you had to click send before information before the file didn't end. Because if it didn't, it would be connected to the the podcast world, but have not attached to you. Like this was like it was the most tech nightmare of all things. Like I gave up. Like my first the first po- podcast I was like. This is too much work for me as a tech person, right? And like now where we're at on tech and like a podcast, you can record on your phone and upload it within seconds. So I think for all those that can be a little bit overwhelmed, with like all this tech and the jargon that goes along with it, I think we we sometimes forget how quickly we've gone from a pager to a cell phone, from a cell phone, you know, from a, from a wall phone to, a, you know, a phone in our pockets walking around our house. And so I just wanted to throw that in there because I think I, I'm glad you caveat that because sometimes it can get a little bit techie and a little bit uh, you know, overwhelming for an audience, but I think it's important to kind of level set that.
0: It's going to be wonderful and things that seem so different now are going to be so the norm in the future. And that brings me to our little game that we're going to play at the end. This is called Full Out Facts. And I have to say that this next section is sponsored by Full Out Creative, a small company with a big heart. They do live streaming, producing, videography, photography, and so much more. For details, check out fulloutcreative.com. Now, just so you know, this is a game where I scour the internet to uncover fun and random facts about my guests to find out if they are true or not. So it's time, Brian Fanzo, to play Full Out Facts. And okay, here we go. True or false, your original loadout for the educational video game The Oregon Trail included at least two oxen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's true that is true that is
1: true wow that's a good fact
0: well can you go on because i
1: i'm I, did you, you you played this i a did lot? Oregon Trail yeah. was one of the ones that um it was one of the games that the the teachers sent me to to keep me busy right and it was a but it was a game of uh you know you had to you know, buy things along the way and you had to be able to keep keep your team alive and you had to bring on you know it, it was very for me a lot of that was it was It was all ultimately Oregon Trail to me as a like kind of my generation, Like right? I'm a pager-wearing millennial born in 1981. So I relate a hell of a lot more to those born in 1972 than I do those born in 1989. It's just like the way that the generations kind of fall. And Oregon Trail to me was like that essence of, it taught us a lot about like community and gameplay. And it also added elements of like being able to kind of navigate beyond Like a Pac Man or or some one of those worlds, but yeah, Oregon Trail has a a close place in my heart. Also, was like I would look at it as like the teachers' saviors of how they they dealt with me a lot of times. They're like, yeah, Brian, and like all the other kids in class would be jealous. Like, why does Brian get to do Oregon Trail? Uh, You know, and I remember like I would I would win awards like most money earned on Oregon Trail and like in my school. And I was like, yeah, it's because I had the most hours earned on Oregon Trail. So uh, yeah, that's a nice find. I love that. Okay, true or false. You were nominated for a Shorty
0: Award after live streaming Super Bowl 50 for over 14 million people.
1: That is true. And it was a pretty cool Shorty Award. It was the first award of its kind. Uh, and I didn't really know what a Shorty Award was at the time. And then I found out it was all this entire Internet Culture Awards. Uh, and I actually got to do it was live streaming with the award show and got to go there to New York, uh, you know, as one of the nominees. And, uh, you know, it was it was a really cool, really cool experience. And it was my first my first time being acknowledged as a creator, and it was probably the first time I ever heard the word, and then associated like I was okay being comfortable with it. So, uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. It was uh, and the Shorty Awards. are still still around today. They're doing uh, they have, acknowledge and, and reward a lot of really cool creatives in you know all different platforms, all different worlds. And I'm still good friends with some of the the people that you know, work on that. So, uh, always fun to, to see that. But yeah, that was that, and I was for Super Bowl. The Super Bowl gig was. uh, I mean, that's another wild ride, but, uh, you know, a lot of the, but, you know, a lot of things on people betting on me and then me betting on myself and being able to live stream there from the Super Bowl.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. One last question here for Brian fans are true or false at age 14. And I think you mentioned this, you won a speed typing contest.
1: <laughs> I did. I did. And I, I, I try to brag to my daughters about that. Uh, and I will tell you, it was one of those things where, you know, you had to do like the red fox jumped over the, whatever, like the, you know, the sentences on there. And it was the for whatever reason in high school, like I was on the, I was, uh, you know, on the newspaper and on the yearbook. That was like my, my two things I did in school. And the, that same place where you did like the testing was in that same room. Like, so we'd go in the yearbook room and I mean, now looking back, a lot of it probably is a little bit of my ADHD where I would be like, I would get all my tasks done. And they're like, well, we gotta wait till everybody gets their pages done for the newspaper, you know, do the roundout. And I would just go sit in front of that that typing game, and I was like, I'm gonna beat the total amount of correct words and in, in 50 seconds. And yeah, and then I won my high school, and I they sent me to this regional event, and I, I mean, it's I credit that as wild as it is for anyone that doesn't believe like little things, I, I credit that for me when my dad suggested getting in the tech, I was like, oh, I could do tech, like. I went to that, and I will say, I went to that regional event and got my butt kicked, by the way. Like the way that people would type. Now, I will say, and actually, it's funny that, um, so there is an event coming up, and I've put it out there that I believe I can type faster on an iPhone. Than any other speaker and so we're gonna compete at, a, at an upcoming event uh i've i kind of mastered speed typing uh thanks to twitter uh on an iphone so maybe maybe it's gonna come full circle after i'm 40. i'm gonna win a, a iphone typing contest but yes that's that's a good find it was
0: that that is great because you have you do and actually i did have that as a follow-up question because you say that you talk fast and you tweet faster and, and so that was my follow-up question so i'm curious uh, well we'll keep our eyes open for this But I just want to say, Brian Fanzo, thank you for continuing to inspire so many people and for giving us all a moving tale. Really appreciate it. Thank you
1: for having me. It was a lot of fun.
0: Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, one more time... Uh, just to confirm, where can people connect with you online? Sure,
1: yeah. So um, I believe in the power of consistency. So uh, I Social Fans, the letter I, and then Social Fans with a Z at the end um, is my brand on every single social channel. Uh, if you find a social channel that I'm not on, please message me because uh, I believe I'm just about on everyone there is. Uh, and, you know, and then my speaker website is brianfanzo.com. So BrianFanzo.com, um is the speaker site. And then if you're interested in that coin. Uh, and you don't have to have a crypto wallet, all of the things that are complicated with crypto Uh You can literally create a free account on rally.io or just go to ADHDcoin.com. Dot com So adhdcoin.com. Um And yeah, if you listen to the, how about that? We'll do this. If you listen to the show, get a free account there and send me a message on any of the, on any of the platforms and I'll send uh you know, just say, Hey, I listened to you know Kevin's show and I'll send you five ADHDcoin coin uh, just as a thank you for those that are, are signing up there on rally. So uh, we'll have a little fun with it. So yeah, this is fun, man. I, I appreciate you. And uh, you know, I know you're on your own journey and I'm excited to uh, collaborate more with you and you know, power of social audio brought our world together in a you know a more in-depth way. And uh, I really appreciate you having me on.
0: Well, thank you for being here. Yeah, and the book coming out soon is called Press the Damn Button. Again, for show notes and, and links from today's show, all the links that Brian just mentioned, head over to amovingtale.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, head over to your favorite podcast platform and leave a review, subscribe, download, do all of the good things that you do. And finally, I wanna say thank you for taking the time to listen to a moving tale. Uh, My name is Kevin and you are on The Outermost Ring.